Who's in charge here? Um, imagine someone coming into the church office one Monday morning, and Woody and Ashley and I are sitting in there praying, which is what we always do. Um, and uh, somebody comes in with a furrowed brow and a serious look on their face, and they said, "Who's in charge?" And uh, you know, the answer to that is obvious. My friend Woody over here. <laughs> He's older than me. He has more ministry experience than I do. He's been a pastor for a lot longer. I work with the young people. Um, those would be scary words, right? Maybe we've, we've received them before. Um, imagine working in a retail setting and a frustrated customer comes up and says, who's in charge? I need to speak with the manager. Okay, I'll go get my manager. What did I do wrong? Uh, or imagine... The health inspector comes up to the restaurant where you're a server and he says, I need to speak with the manager, the owner, who's in charge here? It's a really good question, and it's an age-old question. Um, And it's way more important than customer service and code compliance. It's a question that goes all the way back to the very beginning of human history. Who's in charge here is a question that Adam and Eve faced in the garden. And all that happened there with the temptation and their fall into sin, it all boiled down to this basic question, who is really in charge? Is it you or is it God? That same question is very real for us today. The the question, who's in charge, is deeper than parents and children of students and student teachers. It's, it's deeper than employers and employees. It strikes at the very heart of what it means to be a human being. And this question is what we're going to look at this morning. Who's in charge? As we've seen the Gospel of Luke unfold, as we've waded into Luke's Gospel, we saw the uniqueness of Jesus' birth. We've seen the the affirmation of Jesus' ministry through the, through the ministry of John the Baptist, through Jesus' baptism, through his temptation in the wilderness. And last week, we saw how Jesus was beginning to establish his authority in his ministry and in this world. And this next section in Luke's gospel, that's really what he does. He continues to unfold and establish that he is in control. Jesus Christ is in charge. And the, the, the term that Luke uses, that the Bible uses for that, is, is this, that Jesus is Lord. You guys have all heard that phrase before, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is in control. He's in charge. And that theme is, is expressed and developed as Luke's gospel goes from chapter 5 and 6 and 7. We see that Jesus is the Lord of forgiveness. He's a Lord of Peter and James and John's life. He's a Lord of his own mission. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the Lord of the multitudes. He's the Lord of the law. He's the Lord of life. He's the Lord of everything. He's the Lord of the universe. And the question that we need to ask ourselves this morning is, is he the Lord of your life? Is Jesus Christ in charge of your life. There are a couple of things I want to see this morning. First of all, I want us to 
uh, think about the fact that Jesus is in charge when we think we are. That's the first point. Jesus is in charge when we think we are. We've seen it all before. Micromanaging, passive-aggressive behaviors, jumping in to finish the task because no one else can really do it the right way, not being able to delegate to others. And that's just all the stuff that we do. Um, I think it's fair to say that a lot of us have control issues in our lives. We struggle with control idols. And those idols are often exposed in the margins of our lives. So when we're tired or frustrated or stressed out, um, we can become short and angry uh, with other people. And I think that's easy to see. On the margins of our lives, those control idols are exposed. But on the other end, sometimes those idols are exposed when things are going great. When things are, are... Firing on all cylinders and everything's going good. And what do we tend to think? Everything's going great in my life because I am so good. Because I have so much to offer. Because I'm really in control. I figured it out. Everybody's listening to my plans and to my way. And so one of the things that's helpful for us to see here is that Jesus is in charge when we think that we are in charge as well. And one of the things we see from this passage is that Jesus has a plan. I love how this passage starts. Look at verse 1. On one occasion, that could be translated to maybe South Louisiana as this one time. There was this one time. I love to think of Peter telling this story. There was one time when there were so many people surrounding Jesus that he got into my boat to preach a sermon. Remember, Jesus has the authority over life and death, over the natural and the supernatural. But it's really interesting to see that these people were pressing in on him, verse 1, so that they could hear the word of God. And of all the things that we need in this world and all the things that this world needs, this is one of the most important and pressing to remember. They needed, we need the word of God. They came to hear Jesus' message. They came to hear about Jesus, the good news, the gospel about himself. And this story, in this story, we have the unique perspective of looking back at what happened. James, John, and Peter, they didn't know what was about to happen. But it's important for us to remember that Jesus has a plan. And phase one of his plan is a preaching platform. They were on the shore of the Lake of Gennesaret. That's another name for the Sea of Galilee. This is where he did a lot of his ministry. And uh, the people were pressing in on him. So Jesus saw two boats. And it happened to be that he got into Peter's boat. That was not an accident. He asked him to put out a little ways into the water. Peter may have dropped the anchor of the boat as he got out 30 or 40 or 50 yards. And, and uh, Jesus preached. And he had a little space. And you know how sound carries over the water. It was a, a perfect, simple plan. It was a preaching platform. That was phase one. Phase two, Jesus' plan had to do with Simon thinking he was in control. We don't know this for sure, but I think it's, it's possible that this whole episode got Peter off of his routine. 
You see what the, set, the scripture says is that he and his buddies were cleaning their nets. They were cleaning their nets after a long night of fishing. A long night of fishing where they caught nothing. Now, it's one thing to go on a bass fishing trip or a trout fishing trip and catch nothing. But if it's your livelihood, if this is how you pay the bills, they probably felt a little pressure. So he and his partners are cleaning the nets after a uh, some zero night of work. And then Jesus comes along and he says, hey, uh, let, me, let me put out in your boat so I can preach. And uh, Peter may have been a little frustrated about that, but he said, you know, I've got work to do, but okay, Jesus, I'll put out my boat for you to preach. And then after the, after the sermon, Jesus turns to Peter and he says, put out into the deep water and drop your nets. And this is where Simon probably thought all of these kind of things. Jesus, you stick to preaching. Let us do the fishing. We catch fish in the shallows. We catch fish in the pass. We don't catch fish in the middle of the day out in the middle of the lake. That's absurd. But since you say so, we'll do it. It's important for us to know that Peter already had a relationship with Jesus at this point. This wasn't the first time he'd ever seen him or met him. You remember his brother Andrew came and introduced Jesus to Peter. And, and Jesus said, uh, I'll call you Simon. From, from the very beginning, the first time, I'll call you Peter. The first time you met him. And then he was in uh, his mother-in-law's house. or He was at Simon's house after church. So obviously there was a relationship already. Jesus had a plan. This wasn't a random encounter. And we don't know exactly what Simon Peter thought about Jesus at this point. Maybe he recognized he was a good teacher. Maybe he recognized he was a miracle worker or even the Messiah. But I tend to think at this point that Simon Peter was a little cautious. Maybe a little cynical. Maybe skeptical. Maybe he thought, I'll follow and trust Jesus, but I'm going to still control my life and my future. You ever been there? You ever thought that before or tried it? How did it work for you? Doesn't work very well, does it? The last thing about Jesus being in charge when we think we are is it's an invitation or an opportunity for us to uh, let go of some of the control idols in our lives. What are the areas in your life where, what are the things in your life that make you really angry, really frustrated, that, that bring about the passionate responses in you? It's possible that those are areas where you struggle with control idols? What are the things that you have or the things that you do that you subtly or not so subtly think make you better than other people? 
Those may be windows into the control idols in your life. Jesus is Lord and his entire life, his entire ministry, his words, his gospel is an invitation for us to embrace his lordship, to trust in him with the details and the scope of our lives. He's in charge even when we think we are. Jesus is also in charge, point two, when we realize we're not. Jesus is in charge when we realize that we're not. Sometimes we can, in, we can identify our tendency to try to run, to run the show in our lives. But other times, we need a wake-up call. Folks have called this hitting rock bottom, coming to the end of their rope, having a rude awakening, having a reality check, whatever you want to call it. There are times, often difficult times in our lives, where we come face to face with the reality that we are not in control. That's exactly what happened here. Simon Peter had his doubts, but he and the crew put down the nets anyway. And we'll see how this turns out. They didn't catch their limit. They caught so many fish that they had to signal their friends on the shore to come and help them. They caught so many fish that the nets began to break. And when they finally did start to get the fish in the boats, the both boats started to sink because, sink because there were so many fish. Forget about putting the fish in the live well. Just throw them in the boat. They didn't get lucky. They didn't happen to come across a school of fish. Simon Peter and James and John knew what this was. This was a supernatural miracle. Here's what happens when we come face to face with God. That's what happened here. Simon Peter and James and John came face to face with God. When we come face to face with God, we remember that he's in charge. I love how verse 8 says it. Look in your Bible. But when Simon Peter saw it, when he saw what was happening, he was absolutely blown away. His friends were too. Verse 9, they were all astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. Peter and his friends came face to face with the glory and majesty and power of God. They could not ignore it. And it sounds like something that we should get day in and day out in our lives. But so often in life, we try to run the show. We try to act like we're in charge, like we're the director. And we play God. And it's good and healthy for us to remember, to be reminded, to see and know that God is in charge, that Jesus is Lord. What do we do when we come face to face with God? We remember he's in charge. We're also convicted of our sin. Simon Peter's response to this whole episode is that he fell on his knees. He knelt down before Christ, the Messiah, the Lord of the universe. And he said these words, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. When we're confronted with the glory and majesty and holiness of God, The only appropriate response 
is humble recognition of our sin and our sinfulness. At first glance, it may seem strange that this is the way that Simon Peter responded. A part of me would think that he would be cheering and yelling and high-fiving his friends and Jesus because this is the most fish we've ever caught, ever. It's because he came face-to-face with the Lordship of Jesus Christ and his own desire to run his life. Remember Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah saw this vision of God, the Lord, lofty and exalted, holy, holy, holy as the Lord God Almighty. What was his response? Oh no. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. See, we all know that we're not made to live autonomous lives. We're not created by God to run our lives or to make the rules in our lives or to live by our own grit or determination or will. And in fact, when we try to live that way, what's the result? Here are a few. Insecurity, fear, anxiety, paranoia, bullying, overcompensation. We try to make up for the hurt and the fear and the voice inside of us that says, you can't do this on your own. You weren't meant to live like this. You know you're not really in charge. I've got good news for you this morning. Jesus is in charge even when we realize that we're not. In fact, these can be some of the most influential and important and powerful times in our lives. When we're confronted with the glory of God, we see that Jesus is Lord when we've been trying to run our own lives. Then, then, we're candidates for real change and radical grace. I don't know if it's hardwired into us as human beings. I don't know if it's part of Western culture, but we think that we can handle everything. I got this. I can do it. I'll figure it out. You can count on me. We'll come up with a plan. And you know what? A lot of times that works. But sometimes, God graciously sends something into our lives that we can't figure out, that we can't control, that we can't tweak and work on. This is the end of your rope opportunity from God. Maybe you've said something like this before. I can't stop losing it with my kids. I can't stop gossiping with my friends. I can't stop drinking alcohol. I can't stop looking at pornography. I can't stop, then you fill in the blank. When we say those things, we're admitting that we're not in control even though we act like it. And the path toward real change means that we surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what Simon Peter did. Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. What does Jesus say to us in those situations? 
but we surrender and cry out to Him for help. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. That's what He told Simon Peter. Don't be afraid, verse 10. From now on, you'll be catching men. Do you see the beauty and glory of this radical forgiveness and acceptance? Jesus didn't have to go into all the details of the gospel. Peter knew it. He'd come face to face with Jesus now personally and existentially. And he cast himself on Jesus' feet for mercy and grace. And he essentially said, I'm a sinner. I'm not worthy. And Jesus said, don't be afraid. He's saying, I know I'm in control when you realize you're not, and I still love you and care about you. This is why I came. Do not be afraid. Now, you're a candidate for real change and lasting grace. What happened to Simon Peter in Luke 5 is a snapshot. It's a picture for us of of at least two things. First, it's a picture of what it means to come to Jesus Christ for the first time in conversion. Of how someone might become a Christian. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. You're investigating the claims of Christianity. Maybe in, in your heart you're wondering if following Jesus is really worth it. Maybe you're a teenager thinking about what your future will look like. And I have good news for you this morning. If you have the courage to admit that you're not in charge, the courage to confess that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, if you bow the knee to Jesus Christ, He'll love you and receive you and never forsake you. And He'll give you abundant life now and eternal life with His Father forever. Here's the thing. We think we're in charge. We want to be in charge. But when we're lovingly confronted with our powerlessness over this world and over people and even over ourselves, that's exactly what we need to cry out to Jesus for help and life. It's also a beautiful snapshot, I believe, of what it means to come to Christ for a lifetime of repentance. Maybe Peter was already converted. Maybe he already trusted and loved Jesus. But this was just one more opportunity in his life to repent of his sins to his Lord and Master. And if you think about Peter's life, he had plenty of opportunities to do this, just like us. You remember one of them when Jesus told his disciples plainly, you know what, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be crucified and on the third day rise again. Peter thought, that's a crazy plan, Jesus. No way you're going to do that. He had an opportunity to repent for that. Remember when Jesus said, I'm about to be betrayed on the night in which he would be betrayed. And Simon Peter said, I'll never leave you. I'll go to the cross with you. I'll die with you. He had an opportunity to repent of that as well. You remember later on in his life when subtly and slowly he stopped eating with the Gentiles. And Paul confronted Peter to his face. He had an opportunity to repent there. Like Peter, we have plenty of opportunities in our lives to repent and turn back 
to Jesus, to repent to our spouse and to our friends and to our Lord and Savior. And we can drift in our lives and slide and subtly slip into actions and attitudes that aren't right, that aren't in line with the gospel. We're stubborn and we hold on to our sin. And part of the the Christian's life is to repent and, and reorient our hearts and lives toward Jesus. Do you guys remember Rich Mullins? Rich Mullins was a Christian singer in the 80s and 90s. And he sang this, one of his songs was Hold Me Jesus. Now, I'm going to try to just read the lyrics. <laughs> it really is hard. Uh, this is one of, the, this is one of the, the lines. Surrender don't come natural to me. I'd rather fight you for something I don't really want than take what you give that I need. And I beat my head against so many walls. Now I'm falling down, I'm falling on my knees. Peter's response to Jesus was a pattern for the rest of our lives of growth and repentance. What are areas in your life where you're fighting God for something you don't really want Instead of taking what he gives that you need. Our calling is clear, it's to repent. The last thing we'll see uh, just quickly is Jesus is in charge and that's exactly what we need. We see it in verses 10 and 11. Not only did Jesus comfort Simon and James and John, he expressed his authority and forgiveness and lordship over them. He said, don't be afraid. But then he went further. From now on, you'll be catching men. Jesus comforted them in their guilt and shame. And then he went straight to the beauty and glory of their calling. Of what their new life would be about. I love that Jesus doesn't say, come to me and you'll all become preachers. Come to me and you'll all become evangelists. He said, I'm going to make you fishers of people. He spoke to them in a way that they could understand. You'll be casting the net of God's love and grace and mercy to people who don't even know they need it. To people just like you who think they're in control of their lives and who need to see and understand and submit to the authority and love of Jesus Christ. See, in bold letters and beautiful relief, we see that Jesus is the Lord of Simon and James and John. And they don't even know what their lives will look like after this. They have no idea. They have no idea what they're in for. But when they got to shore, they left everything and followed Jesus. You know, if you're a Christian here this morning, a follower of Jesus Christ, that same thing is true for you. He says, don't be afraid. I'm going to make you fishers of men, and we're called to leave everything and follow him. And that doesn't mean we all have to sell our homes and move to the mission field. It doesn't mean that we, um, you know, have to give up everything that we have. But here's the bottom line. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, who you are and what you do and where you go and how you live is shaped and instructed and governed Not by your own plans and desires and ambitions. Jesus Christ is your Lord. He's your master. 
We belong to Jesus Christ. Paul said it this way, you're not your own, you've been bought with a price. Peter and Paul began many of their New Testament letters in this way, bondservants of Jesus Christ. It's beautiful and liberating. Who's in charge? Who's in charge in your life? Jesus Christ. What about my past and all the mistakes that I've made and all the baggage and the scars and the wreckage? Jesus knows all about it. And he's forgiven me. And he loves me. What about the future? The questions, the change, the contingencies. Jesus is in charge. And he'll guide me through. He said, don't worry about tomorrow, but let tomorrow worry about itself. What about the present? Today, there's so much on my plate. Stress and deadlines and pressure. Jesus loves you. And walks alongside you today. You see, trusting and remembering and believing that Jesus is in charge is actually one of the most liberating things in the entire universe. Many of you are familiar with this. The first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. We'll end with this. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, But I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has faithfully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. And he set me free from the tyranny of the devil. And he watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Heavenly Father. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life. And makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Who's in charge? Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's pray.